the greatest teachers in the world didn't just wake up one day and believe that they were the greatest teachers in the world. They're greatest teachers because they have so many failings that they've experienced and so many challenges with the wisdom they've had that they had to question themselves what they're worth. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks Cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt episode 291 of the Decoding Success Podcast, top 1% globally ranked podcast, thanks to you. This is your host, Matt Labrie, and today we're joined by my brother, Erwin B. Valencia, for a conversation that will pull on your heartstrings, to say the least. Erwin is a polymath, part-time high-performance clinician, part-coach, part-change agent. He has served as the team physical therapist, athletic trainer, and wellness lead for the New York Knicks. For all my Knicks fans, he's the guy that initiated the team's mindfulness program in the 2015-2016 season and started the first-ever in-season daily breathwork intention-setting and meditation program in the NBA. He was also the first to collaborate with a meditation app called Headspace in order for it to be used as a recovery strategy. Erwin is also an international speaker, nonprofit and Web3 founder, mentor, educator, author, high-performance coach, and community leader. Honestly, I am so excited for you to be here for this conversation as we dive into the depths of numerous topics. For one, gratitude, something talked about in mainstream personal development. But if you've ever struggled with quote-unquote feeling grateful or getting some PhD background on it, stay tuned. We're diving into the depths of how the fear of success oftentimes outweighs the fear of failure, why that is, and we're going to help you find out if this is what's happening to you. We're diving into being remembered even before you're no longer here, once again, quote-unquote. For example, it's so common for people to take us for granted and let's say a relationship. After the person gets hit with the bag of bricks showing how valuable we are when we're no longer in their life. So how do we ensure we're remembered today while we are in their life? Even beyond relationships, that's just an example. So much more in this episode, I ask questions that I have never asked in 290 plus episodes of running a podcast, so be ready for the fun to begin. Before diving in, your call to action is to share this with someone you love, someone you know that can use these powerful messages embedded within. You showed up here today for a reason, to soak in this wisdom, to share this wisdom, and to make an impact in the people that you love in their life as well. So make sure you tap into this calling by sharing this episode. And now without further ado, we bring to you my brother, Erwin B. Valencia. Erwin, welcome to Decoding Success, brother. I'm really hyped for this. Like this is, this is gonna be a good conversation, man. I appreciate you joining us, man. I'm honored to be here. I know we've been trying to get this together for quite some time, but I guess the right word is that I finally have time to breathe to be able to then also be here presently, perfectly present for you and also maybe 90% pain-free. So Okay, we'll we'll talk about that. But I mean, at the end of the day, all happens in divine timing, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack in itself. I, I guess I'll kick it off with that question. I mean, I didn't plan to go down that route, but divine timing what does that mean to you like how do you accept the timing of the way your plan has unfolded i've been always been intuitive i think i was raised in a family but also in society that allowed for me to 
listen to my gut a lot, particularly because my father was massive in the martial arts. And I found myself beginning martial arts at the age of seven, learning meditation at the same time. And then by the time I was 12, I was teaching meditation and martial arts. And so I think through the gift of martial arts and the curiosity that I ultimately had of wanting to then know more, it allowed me to be patient, but also listen. And part of that too is, you know, coming from the Philippines, very religious. And so they teach you patience and they teach you divine intervention. But I think as I've grown older and my spiritual practice has a bit more diverse, it's gonna allowed me to delineate between what is divine intervention, what is intuition, and what is the path that you take knowing that divine intervention is about to happen and it's up to you whether you want to listen to it to get to that direction or not. I mean, my first question based off of that, which it was very beautiful, I appreciate that, is how the hell do you teach patience? Because I need to learn that. I mean, listen, just growing up in New York as a millennial, like everything is at the fingertips. Everything's on demand. I mean, I was spoiled my whole life. So it's like, give me, give me, give me now. How do you teach someone patience. It's interesting that you, you say, uh, number one, I kudos to you for admitting that you are an impatient millennial. Like not many millennials will admit to that. <laughs> That's number one. But number two, you know, growing up in New York, you really have the world at your fingertips and literally out the door, you step outside the door and you can have every language available to you. If you want to learn it, you can have every food type that you want to try. You can learn about every possible culture if you want to try and, and experience it as well. I think growing up the initial part of my life, of my conscious life as a, how you say, maybe four-year-old boy in a city called Davao in the Philippines, where my only, I guess, real friends besides my immediate family and my cousins that we all lived in a little compound, was the books that my grandmother had in her house that were Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys books right next to Encyclopedia Britannica. And I'm sure not many millennials even know what Encyclopedia Britannica is and volumes of books that talked about the world and the different things that were happening in the world, history particularly. And so I was always curious. And for me, I knew that there were things that I wanted to see and do, but I was living in, at that time, a small town in the Philippines. You have nothing but patience. You have no choice but to be patient. And because life was simple, you learn it along the way. I mean, even in, when I was in school, the games that I used to play were made of stones and marbles and the dirt and, and even a period of time playing with spiders and in matchboxes and letting them wrestle each other. I mean, that was fun, I think, because there was not that sense of immediacy, but rather being present. It gave me the ability to learn patience, plus the fact that because growing up Catholic, it was part of what I needed to do yeah. as part of being Catholic. Sure. It's, you have to learn how to be patient. Sure. So. You use the term that I'm really curious to understand what you meant by this. You talked about, you know, your conscious life, quote unquote. Are you referring to that as times you can remember? Like what would unconscious life be? Is that like when you're a baby? Yeah, okay. I think conscious life for me, meaning that when you begin your understanding of what life is around you. And there's obviously different elements to that as you get older and as I've gotten older and been able to experience life in many different ways, it's helped me gain even more consciousness rather than just pure fact of what is now you begin the awareness of what's deeper that you can't see and maybe the the thought process of just something you can remember is what it begins with and it's the time that you can recall as clearly as possible and i think that's what i maybe will define as my conscious knowing life what's your first memory this is a question i've done 300 plus episodes i've never asked this question before what is like what is the first thing you remember about your life 
Ooh, you know, that's an interesting one. I've thought about this before. I think I've been asked about this before. I, you know, I'm part of multiple personal growth communities and programs, and we get deep and really intimate with regards to how we ask our questions with many of my communities. And so I think for me, when I was asked this, I think for me, one of the earliest memories for me that I can be that is so vivid could possibly be running around in really my grandmother's house and in the Philippines and remembering dog we had. It was a black lab named Brutus. And great um, name. Brutus, that was a black lab. And also alongside that, we had like geese in my grandmother's house for some strange reason. And and I remember these geese like chasing after me. They were rabid. I don't know why. <laughs> so there was Brutus. We had a lot of animals. And within my, my grandmother's like outdoor and we had cats that were stray. We had Brutus, which was a black lab. We had geese and hamsters and all that stuff. And I think at one point in time, I even had a pet piglet. By no means that my grandmother had a farm. I mean, we did, but this was actually her house house that was like in the city of a town, I guess, I guess of a province. Like, so if the province is really rural, this was the main city in that rural, rural town. So five, maybe five. My first memory was when I was in kindergarten and maybe, and I mean, it's really hard to put a timeline to these things, right? Like you, yeah. you know, you even just said, maybe I think my first memory. So crazy to think about how memories are stored but I was in kindergarten and I'll never forget that I had a crush I had a crush on this girl in my class her name was Stephanie we went to elementary school together all the way through and I remember vividly I went to Catholic school my entire life up until college and you know we would sit in a certain particular order and whenever I was getting ready to leave especially in the winter I vividly remember me going to put my jacket on before we had walked out of the classroom as close as I could to her we didn't sit that close together but that's my first memory that I could recall at least and it goes all the way back to kindergarten and, and how old do you think you were in kindergarten six I don't know yeah, how old are we six. in kindergarten I'm not I'm honestly not sure I remember being nine in third grade, so eight seconds, seven. Kindergarten would be five, six. Five, six. That's interesting that we're, yeah, we're pretty five, aligned six. there. Yeah. Yeah, pretty aligned. Yeah, I think mine was exactly that, about four years old. Or, or That's so wild. I don't think I can really recall something very vividly prior to preschool. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. This is, I mean, totally random. I love the background, like fashion or hats in particular mean to you. Like, where does this come from? I've been wearing hats since I was a little boy. Some of the earliest memories and pictures of me were me in a fireman hat, in a policeman hat, in a cowboy hat. I've always worn hats. And which is really funny because I'm a man of multiple hats. And this is who I am. I'm a man of many hats. I, you know, I have many interests, hobbies, passions, expertise. And so it's kind of funny. It's very metaphorical that I actually like hats, grew up with hats, but I'm also a man of really actually many hats. But for me, it's always been the different, I guess, phases of my life, but also the different personalities that and passions that I have in the form of something I'm wearing. So let's say, for example, I support a group of artisan women in Oaxaca, Mexico, and, and they produce all these top the hats that are in the top part there. They're very simple. They're very simply made along with these pom-poms and stuff and, and obviously different events and different moods and also different places that I would go to would warrant wearing a different color. You know, now if the events that I go to are more particular to a certain style, like this kind of dark red with a pink is more like the afternoon picnic when you're wearing pink and uh, or feel like you're dapper wearing a, a suit for an afternoon 
you know, polo match type situation, you know, and this guy right here, I got in Panama while I was there. I have a Panama Jack somewhere here too, but it was something I needed to wear at the time that I didn't want anything too big. So when I was dancing salsa, that I wouldn't like block my hand. Cause when I wear these things, it's impossible to dance partner dances. Cause they, you're hitting your partner in the head. Your arms are swinging up in the air. It's especially when you're dancing with a shorter partner, it will be definitely not the right thing to do. And then there's this one, which I made myself it took two days to make. It's called volume zero because it was the first ever made, but my friends call it toasted marshmallow because my plan was to make it white. And as a novice, you're figuring out how the heck do you keep your hats white when you're in the shop and there's so much stuff flying around and you know what i said so my uh, hat instructor hat workshop instructor was like i don't think this is going to turn perfectly white dude <laughs> we're gonna have to like give a vintage flavor or something to it because it's not gonna be perfectly it white, works so. it works I, and yeah <laughs> maybe maybe that wasn't such a random question after all because there, there was some deep meaning there it leads me to ask you this you know you talk about being an individual that wears many hats, you know, figuratively or however you want to frame it, do you feel like you have to become a master of a hat before wearing another? Ooh, that's a great metaphorical way to ask that question. You know, I don't think you have to be a master completely, but I think you have to know enough to be able to then be a teacher of said hat or function, so to speak. And, and I say that as somebody who's a lifelong learner, but also a teacher and a mentor and a coach myself, I think it's important to have a bit of a background and knowledge and of course, wisdom to be able to then share with other people. And if you're just beginning that journey, it's harder for people to number one, believe you in the first place that you know what you're saying and doing. Number two, wanting to then trust to follow you and your words and your actions because you're also just beginning your journey. And three, more than anything else, I think it's there's this sense of, I guess, confidence from the teacher's perspective to really say like, I'm confident to either A, know what I'm talking about or B, not know what I'm talking about. And I think every teacher, every Sherpa, every guide, those who are good and those who truly are teachers among inside themselves are the first ones to be the students and be able to admit that there's things that they don't know. And so it takes deep wisdom and presence of let's say said hat to be able to admit that there's something that you don't know. Absolutely. What's your favorite thing to teach? Ooh, gratitude. I've spent the past seven years really studying the art, the science and the practice of gratitude. And I'm on my third year of working on a PhD specifically on gratitude. And I think I've spent enough time and practice to be able to really know a lot about it from the science side, but also on the practical side and what works, what doesn't and be able to just be it. And I think the beautiful thing about somebody that's in the state of gratitude on a regular basis is that you don't necessarily have to teach people how to do it. You just are it. And when you are, people just see it from you and just, you just emulate and they just, they just understand. I think more than anything else. Yeah, I, I want to share something with you that was actually shared with me on the show a while back, actually. I was at a point in my life, and maybe I'm still at this point, but maybe a little bit further down the road where I just didn't feel grateful for much. I mean... And listen, I have a lot to be grateful for. Like, I don't want to sound like an ungrateful brat, you know, like, I, let's call it what it is. I have a lot to be grateful for. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I just felt like I wasn't really grateful. And I was sitting across from Anil Gupta, who's Mike Tyson's former happiness coach. And he looked at me and he says, we, we were having a similar conversation. He said, Matt, he was like, are you a righty or a lefty? And I said, well, I'm a righty. And he goes, okay, if I told you that I was coming to New York City today and 
I wanted your left hand. Would you give it to me? And I said, I mean, no, like why well, I, I wouldn't want to give up my left hand. And he goes, okay, so you're grateful for your left hand. And yeah, I guess I'm grateful for my left hand because I don't want to give it up. What are your thoughts on that? Like that, that was kind of my way of like trying to instill gratitude. I, I had to like go through the back door. Hmm. Interesting. Well, when it comes to gratitude, what we found and what I found in research is that you have to be held accountable for that gratitude. For the initial period of time that I studied, and, and funny enough, I began really getting fascinated about gratitude because there was a period of time that I, you know, I had a girlfriend that was funny out of nowhere asked me, it's like, okay, what are you grateful for today and why? And I said, well, I'm always grateful. I'm Filipino. I mean, we grew up in a life of gratitude and resilience, knowing that when I was growing up there, if a typhoon passes by and wipes out a whole town, you just rebuild back and be grateful that you're alive. And you walk out in, in a land of have and have nots on a regular basis. You walk out that door knowing that you're going to see somebody right away that doesn't have something you have, you know, but they could easily be happy. And because they're grateful for the fact that they have a life that they're living. And so, and so I would defend myself. It's like, why do I need to like specifically tell you? She was, because it's important that you be held accountable for not just the experiences of what makes you grateful, but for this moment in time, the why is the most important because it makes it real. And I said, huh, okay. So, you know, her and I were together for almost two years. And when we broke up right around Valentine's Day of 2015, I think, she left a bit of loneliness inside of me of this person that kept on asking me this question and holding me accountable for it. And so a few months later, I decided to just I don't know, I put it on Instagram for some strange reason. And that's how daily gratitude started. Like what I do every single day, I write down what I'm grateful for and why to hold myself accountable for whatever it is that I'm grateful for today and then have people see it because now it's on the internet. Now it's real. And so it's funny because as the months passed by, you had people following me and saying like, hey, you know, I get up every morning. I wait to see what you're grateful for because then it reminds me to also be grateful. I had a guy once tell me that, you know, I made a song because I've started following you. I made a song about gratitude and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And, I, and then and I was wondering about that because it's become a little bit of a kitschy thing to be like, hey, be grateful, you know, grat hashtag gratitude. But when people try to do that, it goes one year and the other. It actually doesn't hold ground. And so the, the question I ask people all the time is, so I say, okay, what are you grateful for? And they're like, blah, blah, blah. Then I ask them, why? And they're like, because. No, no, no. Pause for a second. Be in this moment. Ask yourself why you're grateful for that thing and give me an answer. And then they're like, oh, I actually have to think about this. Well, you should. If you're setting an intention, particularly that is with gratitude, you need to pause and really think about it and not let it be a flighty moment because then it's not real. I get it. I guess, I don't know. I feel like sometimes when I deliver the why as to why I'm grateful for something, like I can tell you why I'm grateful for my parents who are both still alive, but that doesn't necessarily provoke feeling inside of me. Does that make sense? Like, true. Does it need to provoke but feeling? Not necessarily. I mean, gratitude is technically among the premise scores in positive psychology to be a positive emotion. But the most interesting thing about gratefulness, particularly, and there, there's sometimes a line between when people say gratitude and gratefulness, because it's about being in the state of the moment. And what they've shown is that out of every variable or emotion that's out there, being in the state of gratitude is the only thing that actually has no negative polarity. Meaning that you can be happy and you can still be sad. You can be joyful and still have some anger because like, yeah, we win, but there's a side of anger. But gratitude or in the state of gratefulness, once you're truly in it, is the only kind of 
feeling or variable that occurs in your body where there's no negative polarity because you can't be grateful and then ungrateful at the same time. It literally is the only one. And some of the scientists will say that there is one thing that is similar to that, which is being in the true state of mindfulness. It's being in a state of this meditative moment. So besides the state of meditative moment or enlightenment, as people will call it, being in that state of gratitude also brings you there. You don't necessarily have to have a feeling. You're just in this moment. And if you it makes you pause and stop, that's all it really needs to do. Sure. I think that's where I was getting caught up. So I appreciate you breaking it down like that because it, it, it led me to feel like I was being ungrateful because I didn't feel anything coming up. So for example, if I was like, I don't do this anymore, but if I were to be writing down, you know, three things I'm grateful for in the morning, you know, a very, I don't, I don't want to say cliche, but a habit that's, you know, promoted all over the internet and on podcasts and on this and on that. So I, you know, started doing that. But as I'm writing these things, I'm like, well, I don't feel anything coming up as I'm writing this. Like I don't actually feel grateful for writing down that I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head. Am I grateful that I have a roof over my head? Of course, I would not prefer the opposite. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to anyone that does experience that. But I guess it always led me to feel like I wasn't grateful because there was a lack of feeling. And I've been on the other side of the spectrum. I'll give you an example. Literally just this weekend, I was laying down with my girlfriend and I started to cry right in front of her as I was holding her. And I was like, I just feel so grateful for what we have. And tears were in my eyes. And I'm like, wow, that to me is gratitude. But I, I appreciate you breaking it down and just saying like, hey, like gratitude is also not experiencing, you know, that range of emotion. Yeah, because now you're mixing in emotion. That's not just gratitude that you're feeling. You're feeling deep joy now. Now you're mixing those things two up. So I think it's really an interesting, and people will always have this conversation with me about this. I was like, but, but am I supposed to feel that? Like, yes, you are, but also it's about being in the state and not necessarily about to feel something. Because now when you're crying, now you're feeling sadness because of the joy that you're hearing. Now you're feeling that joy and sadness simultaneously, but initially it was sparked by gratitude. So is it the gratitude you're really feeling or the joy and the sadness that you felt after that gratitude that you started? That's interesting. It merely is a sparker. Yeah. I love this, man. This is this is a really great conversation so far. I, I don't want to throw a curveball here and I don't mean for this to come off as a curveball, but just for the sake of conversation purposes, I'm sure you get a ton of questions, but what's a question that you wish more people would ask you? Hmm. What is it that you really want? What is it that you really want? Yeah. And I say this is because I think for a, somebody who is multifaceted, as somebody who is multi-hyphenate in the true form, somebody who's a polymath, for me, I sometimes I experience this overstimulation of knowing and being good at so many things to the point that I have to ask myself, out of all these things, what is it that I really want? And it's tough. Many different periods of times, it's different. And I have to stop myself or the universe has to stop me and ask me, what is it that you really want? And I think this is the, sometimes I wish some people ask me, well, you hire a business coach and they ask you that because that's what they get paid to do. So <laughs> so that's our, or a coach in general. I mean, I, I ask this question with people that I coach myself is like, what is it you really want? And that if you haven't really thought about it, it'll take you back. It'll make you like think like, why are you asking me this question? That's just rather quick. Well, well, what is the answer for you? Like, what is it you want? I mean, it, the question that comes up for me when I when I hear you say this is like, all right, someone that wears as many hats as you do, someone that's, you know, teaching gratitude, mindfulness, et cetera, et cetera, like 
what are you looking to get out of it? Like, what are, what are you looking to do with that? The impact that you're looking to make on the world? Like, what is that shift that you're trying to make? I'm just curious if that feels like it aligns with what you're saying. I think in the end, I just, in the end, I want to leave a legacy. I want to be remembered. And I think this is what kind of drives everything. And I want to be remembered for doing something good or being a good person. And I think that's sometimes not as easy as everyone thinks it is. Oh, I can just be a good person. I just like, you know, I contribute to charity. I, you know, I do philanthropic work. I, you know, blah, 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 blah. But does that really make you a good person? Or are you doing this to check a box? And so what is your purpose behind it? What is the reason and the why you do it? And for me, it's because what I really want is to be able to not just have me, my name, my family's legacy out there as truly making a difference in this world, but also making a difference in this world for something specific than to be remembered for it. And we both talked about wearing so many hats. It's like you get the mud, the waters get muddy because now there's so many things there. But in the end, how do you amalgamate everything so that then everything you're doing is heading in one direction? And for me, it really is to the point that where I can be remembered as somebody who is really a good human being that also happens to be Filipino and is a symbol of what a true, you know, what, who we are as Filipinos, as caregivers, as people who leave their families to take care of other people. And like, how is that embodied completely? And what are the lessons learned from that where we are givers and everything, but then also how do then we take care of ourselves and finding that balance needs a purpose, needs an anchor. And so then you ask yourself, then why are you doing it in the first place? What do you really want? So you have to, you know, these are the questions I, I mean, I constantly ask myself or you bring people in to ask you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you just having this conversation with you, you're provoking another question that I've never asked and potentially I've never even thought of before. I had to write it down because I'm sitting here and I'm like, holy shit, like, where did this even come from? But I, I literally, no, I just, I just wrote it down. It says, how do you ensure you're remembered without having to be removed or leaving a situation mm. right like we can be grateful for someone or and it goes back to what we just talked about in regards to like how i was taught gratitude by anil gupta like removing something then allows you to be grateful for it but how do we ensure we're remembered without being removed or without leaving a situation i mean it comes up in relationships all the time someone takes you for granted while you're in the relationship and then next thing you know you break up and they're like wait like i couldn't believe you were that good to me how do we ensure we're remembered while we're still here. Mm. You ask yourself, are you doing everything you can each moment, each day, each waking hour to be truly authentic to who you are so that then the person and the people that are around you will know who that is and you'll and you'll be in their top of the mind every single time. If you're kind to people, people will remember that. And if you're kind to people all the time, they'll really remember that, even if you're around them. So that whether you're in that situation or when you leave or you disappear from it or you're removed, they'll be like, you know what? I'm trying to figure out what that guy looked like again. I'm trying to figure out, like, I knew he wore some funky stuff like hats. But you know what? I always remember like that he always like greeted me in the morning and said hello or always got me these little trinkets everywhere because he remembered me. And I think I try to live my life like that every single time. And particularly giving the attention, the time and space to those that are behind the scenes and the shadows, the people that work, the custodians, the, the secretaries, the admins, the, you know, the nurses. And I found such magic of just making sure that everyone is treated the right way with kindness that you don't have to do some drastic thing to then be remembered because all you're doing is doing being you every single day 
and showing that which who you are really inside. And you have to have done the work. If you don't have done the work, then what you're projecting out is bad stuff. But if you've done the work and say, okay, I know who I am and I'm happy where I am and I'm just going to be. And then everyone then sees that, observes. And then, you know, I give people trinkets from my travels because I want to, not not because I want to be known and be like, oh, he's so great. No, just because it's good for me. It makes me feel better. It's nothing to do with like trying to have people look at me and say, hey, he's such a cool guy. He's just giving me stuff. No, it's for me. I just, you know, I remembered you with this little, I don't know, something from Mexico or Guatemala or Africa. And then it's now in your desk and you'll see this. I like, you know what? The guy was a really nice person. I love that. It feels good to give, right? Yeah. I love yeah, giving. Absolutely. Yeah. I love giving. I'm curious. You, you mentioned the term, the quote unquote work. What is the work to you? I think the work is the journey towards enlightenment that many of us are seeking. And it doesn't have to necessarily be religious. It's just knowing and being aware of what maybe your weaknesses are, but also understanding what your strengths are and then going deep within it and understanding how you can be better as a human being to other human beings. And I think many people, especially since pandemic, have been going to places that allows them to get started with the work, whether it's going to a Tony Robbins event or whether going to the middle of the jungle in Peru. And I'm all for that. But sometimes, particularly in this day and age of social media, I think a lot of people are claiming that they're doing the work, but really what they're doing is making sure they're in a situation that seems kind of cool so they can take photos of, but rather actually doing their And it's not about going to Bali for a month and suddenly coming back as a guru. It's it's a lifelong process. And there's too many, unfortunately, there's too many out there. And I think but love for all my brothers and sisters that are going through the journey. But sometimes I got to say, hold your horses. I mean, the greatest teachers in the world didn't just wake up one day and believe that they were the greatest teachers in the world. They're greatest teachers because they have so many failings that they experienced and so many challenges with the wisdom they've had that they had to question themselves what they're worth many times and then be okay with what they're actually worth. Well, that's a good thing to know because I definitely question myself many, many times over it. So it sounds like I'm on a good track. <laughs> oh, I love this. No, that's beautiful. I guess what did the journey to enlightenment look like for you? I mean, I, I could speak very transparently and say that for me, it was really turning inward and you know facing the shit that I you know didn't even know existed. But you know, from your perspective, what did that journey look like? Or what does it look like? Because I mean, listen, does it ever end, right? It never ends, first of all. And then second, I think I was once again, I think blessed with curiosity and a little town in the Philippines, even though I was born in New Jersey. And by the time we moved to the Philippines, when I was like two or three, it really was for me reading these books of Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and going through this adventures, this mysteries they're solving. And then alongside it, the mysteries of earth that was happening, Rapa Nui, Easter Island, Chichen Itza, the seven wonders of the world. And and so for me, I'd add to that, add to the curiosity, the discipline of, of martial arts and that wisdom and my dad having all these books about Shaolin monks and Kung Fu and, and these books that had drawings of, of these monks that would tie lead slippers and jump up and down these holes and seeing the philosophies that are out there. And so at such a young age, you know, beginning at four or five, I was already curious and wondering what else was out there. And so now you have to give yourself discipline to go through that. And as we talked about earlier in intuition, you know, that led to me by the age of 12, teaching this thing that I first experienced five years prior to that, which was just opening your mind and seeing nothing but white to be still to now experiencing something called the Silva method, where I found myself reading a newspaper during a Sunday brunch in, back in Manila and 
seeing an ad for something that said, you know, increase brain power and get better grades. And I was like, what is this? You know, my mom said, this is a ploy, this is a cult. You know, I, I thought, I, mom, I think I want to do this. And it turned out to be a program called the Silva Method. And the Silva Method was brought in just like Tupperware was across Southeast Asia, particularly, and really was targeting kids or teenagers that would help them get better grades. And, you know, especially since we're all type A in, in Asia. And ironically enough, that then led me to be able to then harness whatever I learned when I was seven with the meditation and the martial arts, but then in real time, especially when challenges occurred. So now it's practicing the work I was learning where like, okay, I'm going through a life challenge. Okay. How do I get back? Okay. I anchor, I think of this thing, I learned from Silva. Okay. Now we're back in this phase. Okay, good. So, okay, we'll go through the challenge. And so it's, it's practice. That's why it's called practice. You know, I think many people think that when you, when you learn a skill, it's like, oh, I learned it. I'm good. No, you have to practice. You really do. That's what it is. And, and then, so I learned the silver method and which is our, you know, funny because 20 plus years later, I found myself face to face with the daughter of the guy that started the Silva Method in a resort in Dominican Republic because I went to my first ever A-Fest or now was formerly known as Awesomeness Fest, which was an event hosted by a company called Mind Valley, which now I'm a very big part of for almost 10 years now. But going back to that. I was 14 and by the time I was 16, a really dear friend of mine gave me a book called The Celestine Prophecy. Till this day is my favorite book of all time because it truly opened my eyes to combining the adventure of what is in South America, looking for these kind of dead sea scroll type situations, but then also understanding kind of the religious aspect of it and the spirituality aspect of it and the findings of that journey. So now it combined me, the five-year-old kid reading Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, and Encyclopedia Britannica, but in a story that I'm following at an age that now I'm questioning things and I'm asking, you know, what's out there, what's bigger, what's next, and then doing the work myself, as we talked about, but practicing things. And so it was always fascinating for me that each thing came at the perfect period of time in my life, which then allowed me then to use that as I went through the rest of my life. That goes back to divine timing, right? You just said everything. Uh... It goes back to divine timing. Absolutely. It's so, you know, I talk about this often because it's when you look back and you have 2020, whenever you look backwards, you know, it, it's it's very hard to have 2020 in the present moment. It's a muscle that needs to be built. But when you look backwards and you have that 2020 vision, it's just like, all right, this is why things worked out the way it does or, or the way it did. But divine time, it's like, I don't know. I personally still find it challenging unless I'm in a streak of things going quote unquote good to buy into divine timing. So it leads me mm. to ask you, like, how do you trust the process? knowing that, and maybe you don't believe this and that's okay. And there might be people that are tuned into this that don't believe it, but I'm a firm believer that there's a plan laid out for our life, right? Mm -hmm. From a greater power. And I'm just really curious to know like how you buy into said plan. Like how do you trust said plan? You just do. Plan is in place. And if you don't listen to the signs or are cognizant of what's going on around you and trust that those are signs for you, then you're gonna miss the boat. It's worked so many times for me. It's allowed me to you know, live the life I've lived. It's allowed me to you know, be able to get the dream job I've always aspired since I was a little kid. It's allowed me to know when to leave places and it's allowed me to continue on with things that, I, that resonate with me, just like this personal growth journey. And so you just have to have trust. And once again, it's trusting your gut and having that intuition to say like, you know what, I think that's right. We so much are often are in our heads questioning things rather than trusting our gut and saying like, this feels right. So that's why there's a difference when I kind of work with people, when I coach with people or when I'm just having conversations with friends between like question, what do you think of that compared to how does that feel? 
because when it feels there's this actual feeling that you that this gut feeling this palpable situation that you say you know what i feel that that's the right decision absolutely how do we or what do you suggest someone do when it comes to getting out of our head and into our heart hmm first and foremost Take a breath. You don't have to go into a meditative state. You don't have to, you know, do some crazy breath work unless that's something you need to get into this, this state. But one of the things that I've learned is really fascinating is so that your head doesn't get in the way of it is actually do some sort of strenuous activity. Even if it's jumping up and down for five minutes, jumping jacks, a little bit of running, walking. That's why they say when you walk, you know, your head gets clear when people have meetings. Richard Branson is very notorious for having meetings while he's walking because it gets him out of his head because your head has to think about how your body works. Now your heart has to be able to answer the question because that's what you feel. And so ironically, activity plus, plus number two, activity itself increases the blood flow to your brain, allowing your brain to now just be expansive because there's more oxygen. But really, it's also allowing your brain to just chill out because it is getting air, it is getting breath. Meanwhile, your heart's like, okay, which is really the second, has the second most number of nerves in our system is now make, helping you make these decisions. So it's not rocket science. It's, you know, that's when I remember, you know, going to many of Tony Robbins events and before he lets you go into a certain practice that he's going to do or makes you listen to his lecture, he'll make you jump up and down. He's very famous to do the, this, the raise the roof situation and then he'll go, ah. Oh do this because then you're like, okay, then you're like, ah, breathe, you're up, you're like, you're energized, you're breathing, you're now you're ready to listen. Absolutely. Brains not trying to fight it anymore. Did, did you go to UPW? Which events did you do? Yeah, for, yeah I love UPW. Uh, UPW, Business Mastery. I went to UPW Live once. You went to UPW online twice and business mastery twice. And that's just Tony. That's very blessed to be able to go on this journey and attend many different seminars from many different gurus, so to speak, but also myself be part of that as the person on stage. Yeah, so. I love that. You know, you talk about the process that you were just alluding to in regards to like getting out of our head and into our heart as not rocket science. And I agree with you, but it's also not the default, right? It's not for many people, and maybe for some it is, right? Based on culture and things of that nature. How do we start to make that shift to it become our default? And of course, you know, you could rebuttal and just say practice right away. But there's also a level of like being comfortable with even getting to the point of wanting to shift our default and what's our quote unquote norm. So what's your take on that? What you need to do, each of us need to do is, first of all, be aware that we want to go through the process and shift. If we can't decide ourselves that we want to go in a shift, you're just, you're just going in a battle that's not going to be won. Number two, have people around you that are going through the same journey that will support you, but you support them too. There's no better way to learn and to also be humbled than supporting somebody else going through something. And if they're trying to go and grow and you are too, then surround yourself with them. Because if you're the one person that's trying to grow, that's taking these classes, that's listening to his or her heart more, but then the five people that are around you are all pessimists and don't really believe in what you're doing, then you're just trying to do it yourself. But then if you go and, okay, you have your crew of friends that are like, ah, oh, you're the weird one. You're the one that's trying to learn. It's cool, fine to be weird, but guess what? My elevation and consciousness is going to be way beyond everybody else that's calling me that weird. Because when I go hang out with these other people who also everyone calls in their immediate group are weird, they turn out to be, now we all turn out to be normal. We're surrounded by people 
or just one level above. Yeah, that aligns with me. Appreciate this tremendously. I only have you for a few more minutes, though. I wish I had you for longer. I'm, I'm gonna. Oh, wow. <laughs> time goes quick, man. Time goes quick, especially when you're yeah. enjoying it. I didn't even think about that. Like, I, I know there was something that was written, like at the bottom of your email that said, if you want to take longer, write something or, or say something. And I was like, don't you just go? I mean, you time's book, so then you just continue. Oh, listen, I can keep going. I can go on for days. I'm here to respect your time. So if you want to go longer, we can go longer, but. We can go a little bit longer, yeah. This means that we're almost already there. I mean, this is a great conversation. I appreciate so that. I like it. You're asking me the right questions and I'm able to answer them and I might be able to ask you the right questions too. I so appreciate like, it, man. It works. We're having fun. It's more a fireside chat than it is an actual podcast. Well, that's the thing. It's a, it's a conversation, right? I think ultimately, I mean, I've been doing this for five years now. We're almost five years. We're not quite at five years, but you know, at a certain point you realize it's just like, it's more impactful for the community you're building when you're just talking versus anything else. So I say this in full transparency. I would never invite someone on my show that I'm not interested in learning from. So I don't prepare for these episodes. Like, I have known your work for quite some time. I've, you know, followed what you've done professionally, what you put out on social. And of course, this is from an outsider's perspective. I'm obviously not working with you. I'm not with you every single day. So what I do see, it's obviously of interest, you know, and I just come here with five questions that I ask everyone for the most part. I didn't even get to ask you one, which is how are you? We kind of just like <laughs> jumped into things. You know, what's funny you say that is because I was once on, I went home to the Philippines, I think last year or so, and I found myself invited by the most well-known talk show host in the Philippines. And at that time, he was still trying to figure out stuff because obviously pandemic hit him hard. So they didn't really have like a studio studio, especially in the Philippines. So it, most of the things were broadcasted on the internet rather than being like at a TV studio. And it was funny because we went, I think, 90 minutes think the interviewer or whatever in 90 minutes and he had 10 questions and he only was able to ask me one and then he said by the way you know we still have uh like 10 minutes like the person goes 10 minutes left and then he looks at this thing and he goes you know i just asked you question number one we're not even like to the rest of the nine here i was like i guess we have to do another episode and he goes we're definitely gonna have to do an extra another episode so like, that's a good thing <laughs> that's a good thing free-flowing yeah. conversation is the best i mean uh, there's nothing better than it. it's organic it's fun it's yeah. yeah i'm gonna ask you a question this was actually asked to me by dr michael gervais who uh, works with the mm -hmm. seattle seahawks and him and i were having a conversation and he, he threw this question at me i had zero clue how to answer it at the time so i said you know what what's better than not knowing how to answer it and then just asking everyone else that comes on the show so uh it's not to stump you but i mean you've given us a lot already and i'm just curious to know what you would say if someone had approached you and said hey erwin if i knew what you know how would my life be different if you knew what i knew then you'd wake up every day with a sense of purpose with a gleaming amount of passion and with the ability to take action for that purpose and that passion to make an impact on somebody else's life. How did you get to that point? Like, where, did you ever feel like you were not at that point? Mm, I think I always was. I'm one of those rare unicorns that, and this is why I have so much energy, I guess. I, like the one thing that I've finally taken more awareness to as I slowly have stepped into really admitting to my greatness and what it is that I give to the planet is a certain amount of energy. And the energy that I have as I walk into a room, whether the energy has to do with the fact that I'm wearing a big hat where nobody else is, or the energy, the fact that I just smile or have a laugh that fills up two different floors, or if a song comes up and I just 
feel comfortable myself about vibing and dancing or if the song is something I'm really familiar with just randomly grab somebody and dance with them because I'm comfortable with that while other people will be like oh, I'm not really sure I want to do that and by being very comfortable with who I am I'm able to then emit this energy that I have because I know and I'm aware of what my capabilities are I'm aware of what my weaknesses are but I'm also not afraid to act on it because I know that everything I do has not only purpose but also a sense of kindness and a gifting situation to it. It's like I never really have any ill will against anybody. I haven't in, in a while. And waking up every day, taking a breath with my hand and my heart, just to be grateful that I'm alive is enough for me to charge my engines and say, okay, how can I make an impact on somebody else's day today? At least one. It's a beautiful place to get there. You know, because this is a gift. You know, it is most definitely a gift. This is a gift, just having this conversation. You said very briefly that you got to a point where you're able to admit your greatness. If someone's tuned into this right now and, you know, they know they have that greatness within. We all do. You know, it, it differs and that's what makes us beautiful, right? We're, we're all very different at the same time, very much so the same. If someone feels they have that greatness within them and they're scared to admit it, you know, that they feel like it might be braggadocious or maybe they're just scared of what they're capable of. What would you say to them? Well, somebody asked me this the other night. I was dropping off a friend and she was so curious about the fact that I've, you know, really for the past almost 20 years been working with professional athletes and in various sports. And they said, what do you think is the biggest challenge? People you work with, whether they're athletes, they're startup founders, they're CEOs, they're high performers, basically, in other words, what do you think is the biggest challenge that in a sense stops them from being the great, the greatness that they are? And I immediately answered, it's fear. And she was like, fear of success. Absolutely. Because Yes, we all fail, but when we make it, we don't know what that's like until you get there. And so when you actually get to where you want, you're like, what do I do? Like, I, wow, I made it. Now you're like a deer with the headlights on, but you know, you're just like, now I'm here. What do I do? Meanwhile, without fearing failure, you'll go through, everyone goes through failure. Mm. So you, you're kind of familiar with it. Furthermore, so the fear yeah, yeah. I mean, for, furthermore, just to add to that, when you make it and you succeed, you also have to worry about who didn't come with you. Right there, there's a sense of aloneness, right? Yes. And remember, the higher you climb up on the mountain, the lonely you get. And this is, once again, the challenge of those of us that are on this journey doing the work. As you climb up and climb up the mountain, the people now that you can have conversations with that you're not getting judged and feel safe having conversations get smaller and smaller. And so now that success you have, and that's why most big names, so to speak, whether they're authors, whether they're personalities, celebrities, actors, singers, they end up going through depression and they need support because why? They're now in a place where nobody else is. And so nobody can help you. You know, when it comes to your 20 years of experience working with high performers, whether that be athletes or high level CEOs or anything in between, I'm really curious. And I'm going to more so ask from the athlete side of things because I, I personally played sports. Was there ever resistance to mindfulness or gratitude or what you were teaching them? And the reason I ask this specifically is because when you're playing AAU basketball, your coach isn't teaching you mindfulness or gratitude. When you're playing high school basketball or college basketball, it's also, I mean, maybe now it's a little bit different. Was there any resistance? There always is resistance and there will be resistance on a constant basis. It doesn't matter how high you get on the food chain of sport. Not everyone's gonna vibe with you. And this really, it's as, as simple as that. And the thing that I've learned, particularly as a teacher, as a guide, as a Sherpa, particularly in the world of personal growth and mindfulness as a breathwork and all that stuff in the world of sport, is that all we can do as teachers is 
plant the seed and we don't know when that's how long it's going to take for that seed to grow all you can do is plant the seed you have to let it grow it's an own its own and when the plant is growing and it has to go through storms then you're the person that then provides the shelter if that plant wants it and and i think that's the the biggest challenge where the resistance comes from the fact and not only of the unknowing and the unawareness of these athletes to what you're trying to teach them but it's also the presentation if that person so to speak is whoever the teacher the guide sherpa the coach isn't that person and they're trying to teach that stuff athletes will see it right away like who are you trying to be dude that's not who you are but if you embody it if you're a mindful person you're a good person filled with gratitude an athlete will look at you right away and be like you know what I like what he's drinking. I like his vibe. Once again, we're going back to vibrations and energy. It's like, I like his vibe. I want to know what makes him tick. I want to know what his source of energy is and his vibration is. Yeah. I'm curious, as the teacher, did you ever feel rejected when someone that you were trying to work with or someone that you knew could benefit from what you are teaching? Did you ever feel rejected from that? Yeah. Many times. Yeah. And what you need to do is let go of that. Let go of your ego. What you have to do is be like, hey, I'm here to teach. And if that resonates with you as an athlete that wants to learn, cool. If not, like I said, I'm merely planting the seed. Take yourself out of the situation. Be there for that because there's going to be one day, two years, three years, five years, six years down the line. Now the athlete's going to give you a call and be like, hey, remember that thing that you were teaching us, that little breath work thing that we're trying to do, that setting of intentions that we we're going to do? I want to do that. Like, yeah, this, you know, I'm dating this girl now and like she's into it. And I, yeah, I said, yeah, I did that before. We had this guy come in. He was kind of funky, you know? So, you have to take yourself out of the situation. Let it not be you. Remove your ego and say, I'm nearly here. I'm share the message. It's up to you if you want to take it right now or maybe take it later. It always comes down to someone starting to date someone. And then it's like, you know what? They're into it. That's what it always comes down to, right? It's like I mean, imagine how languages are learned. Like, you know, I think I've learned so many languages when I've because I've dated, you know, women from all over the world. And, you know, suddenly found an interest, like really deep interest, you know, dating a Brazilian girl. And next, thing you know, I'm like suddenly becoming an expert in Portuguese, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know like or Russian. I had a, a Russian girlfriend once and suddenly like I'm wanting to learn everything about Russian, you know, so like it's a language. Well, yeah, we could definitely find motivation in that, right? I mean, yeah, yeah it's crazy. Life is wild. Life <laughs> is fucking wild. I'm doing something new on the show. Stole this idea and I openly admit that I stole it from Stephen Bartlett and what he does on his podcast, uh, Diary mm. of a CEO or whatever it's called. Side Diary CEO. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love what he does at the end of his shows. He asks a question to a past guest to ask a future guest without knowing who's who. And I have a question for you from our last guest. It's a very deep conversation. About relationships with yourself and... Uh... It, that was kind of a funky one. It, well, this is the question I'm about to ask you. This, oh yeah. <laughs> it, it, how do we know we are truly embodying our spiritual or life lessons? How do we know that we're truly embodying our spiritual and or life lessons? And or life lessons, yes. Life lessons? When the people around you feel it. And, and I'll expound on that. And that's fine because I think, once again, going back to the personal growth, going back to doing the work, to what the journey is, if you've taken the time to actually reflect on each of the stages of your life and the ebbs and flow of the lessons that you've learned through each of the challenges and also the wins, and you reflect and you say, this is the change I'm going to make in my life because of the lessons I learned, and then how then I call myself to action to it, how do I then I embody it? And, and so if people around you feel that, once again, 
We're going back to vibes. We're going back to vibrations. And I, I say that because I, I think because many times people would always say like, once again, I love your energy or your energy will be missed or like, I can't wait for you to come here because I just want to feel your energy. And it's not even like, I think most people will initially think of energy like, oh, I'm wild, I'm funky. No, it's not that. You just like, I per se, I think I'm a combination of ultimate groundedness radiating with like love in a sense. And people feel it. And I know that I've done the work and I know who I am when everyone around me feels it and yearn for it. It's a good feeling when people love your energy, you know? I don't make it do it on purpose. I don't, I make it purposeful. I don't do it on purpose. I don't like, hey, feel my energy. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not the guy that comes into like a party going crazy because I want people to notice me. Yeah. I come in grounded, big smile hugs but it's something I, and once again it's the people around me describe i can't describe it myself because i don't feel what other people feel yeah you come in as you and they just say you come in as who you are i come in as me and they just like oh i love your energy like i wish you were here all the time yeah it's like i'm not a lap dog but <laughs> sure like, <laughs> no i get it i get it so the second part of what i have to do here is ask you to ask a question to our next guest without knowing who they are because mm. i don't even know who they are yeah Okay. Okay. I knew that was coming. So I was kind of rummaging in my head already how to ask that is if you had one night left to live on this earth, what would your last meal be? What would yours be? And why? <laughs> last meal would be and why? What would mine yeah. be? Omakase sushi. From? From Jiro, from the train station sushi joint in Tokyo that won a Michelin star. I've never... And he literally... Just you watch it on Netflix. It's like like Jiro does sushi or whatever. He's this like old dude that just you know makes nothing but sushi. Goes to like the market in Japan early. Everyone knows who he is because he's like revered. They make the they take like I don't know day or half a day to make the the, the proper tamago or egg. The process, the rice, the whole different process, and literally the most blasphemous thing you could do is if you put soy sauce in what you he literally make each thing by hand, put it right there, and say eat it and he'll just watch you and you just have to enjoy that full flavor and just do that and then because you're truly in this moment of truly appreciating not just the flavors of the food all the work that Jiro and I think there's only he's only like there's only two people in his restaurant two or three people literally enjoy the work that these three people did for you to have that one bite and so it's the embodiment of true like mindfulness when it relates to food and I said okay it's either that or straight up Korean barbecue <laughs> yes all you can eat meat at let's meet right in Koreatown just especially when it comes to the New York strip steaks that were like this thick. Oh, it's either one or the other. either one truly mindfulness situation or be like, give me more of that steak, please. You know what? <laughs> On the topic of food, I'm going to ask you this because this is something that I personally struggle with. And obviously, you know, you embody mindfulness in numerous different ways. How do we become more mindful of when we eat? I've heard like numerous people speak on this, Ed Milet and whomever else. And I'm going to be honest, man, like I, when I eat, I eat like a fucking savage. Like I eat like I'm never going to see another plate of food, you know? And it's like, wait, like, did you even taste what you ate? And I, I literally watch my puppy do this all the time. I put the bowl down and he just goes for it. Like, like he's never seen food before or it's going to be his last meal. And I do the same thing. Like, how do we instill a level of mindfulness to taste and enjoy and just like be present with the gift that's in front of us? There's one of the topics that we had when I was doing my course in positive psychology was the topic of savoring. And it was really fascinating because what people forget is that yes, you're mindful, you're present in the moment, but savoring is taking the actual time to let all the senses that you're receiving from being mindful, but focusing on one thing. Savoring is being in a moment and looking at a leaf 
or right now and like mm, i'm seeing this like oh is that a pear that's like right outside my door like a pear tree it's not just a pear tree the fact that there's a fruit that's blooming and i see like bee that's around there i'm just like literally saving the moment and then imagine now that taking that pear that you've just like visualized and like being in this moment and then tasting it you're like Mm, this is what it is. It's everything I've seen and now I'm feeling it. And so sometimes people look at me funny because I'm just like, mm, mm, I do this. Like, and they're like, it's either A, somebody be like, wow, that's way too much, dude. That's way too much info. Or B, they'll be like, I love how much you love food. I do. You know, I'm a massive foodie. I think if I wasn't in the world I lived in, I probably would have been a chef. You know, I grew up, you know, I think very lucky to have lived in Japan where they really love how to plate things and they left the presentation of everything and it's clean and when i was younger i remember making these ice cream uh, i was making ice cream banana splits and i had to make sure that as i made the banana split that the banana was cut perfectly they're on the side and i had the different flavors and i would put like a cone to make it look like it's a character and and then i presented it and i stared at it for a good 10 minutes i didn't eat it until it started melting and then, okay, now it's destroyed. Now I can eat it. But I was savoring the moment and the time at a young age of enjoying the fact I created this work of art. And at the time we didn't have phones. So I had to grab my camera and I tried to take a picture of it, but, you know, capture the moment. But then the moment you know, for me, I had to wait until I melted that it got all disrupted and then said, okay, now I can eat it. But then the time I, you know, it's different from, let's say, for example, now fast forward to today when something is being made for you like an omakase where they just deliver one thing at a time, you have to remember everything that took for that one piece of whatever it is in front of you. And you do this and you're like, hmm, save this moment and then go through the process. Absolutely. I love that. I'm going to ask you one last question but before doing that. <laughs> I just want, yeah, I need to let you go. I mean, I could, like I said, I could literally sit here all day. There was one time, you know, I'll just tell you this is funny. As one time I was doing a podcast with one of the top kind of local New York Filipino podcasters, but they usually do like celebrities and stuff like that. Filipino, like especially older Filipino celebrities. And we were recording for like three hours. And I was like, are you guys even going to put all of this in it? They're like, yeah, we're just basically having conversation. Like, it's already two and a half hours. <laughs> like before we actually like figured out what time it was two and a half hours. And they said, let's fine. Let's make it to 30, 33 hours. Flat. Go, go for three hours. You got to make an even, an even number. But um, yeah, I just want everyone to know that socials, websites, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes, like out of respect for your time and all of the value that you delivered here. I just want to make sure that everyone's aware of that. But I'm going to end with this question. This is how we end the show. You know, Irwin makes it to whatever year he wants to make it to, right? He, he lives as long as he wants to live. He wears as many hats. He impacts as many people, as many people feel his energy, all of that good stuff. Like it, it's all complete. And you could only be remembered for one piece of advice, not how you want to be remembered, but I'm, I'm more so referring to if I, you know, knock on wood, this is many, many years down the road. I walk past your tombstone and I think of Irwin and I'm like, all right, this is the advice I remember him for. What is that advice? Hmm. It's the quote I think I will always be attached to, which is, if nothing else, dream to inspire others. I think you've done that tremendously else. today. And if you're able to bring that across in every possible way, it's you've done your part on this planet. I love that. Erwin, thank you so much for this opportunity, brother. This was uh, an absolute blast. We're not going to hit three hours today, but we hit a little <laughs> bit over an hour. So expressing no gratitude, worries, brother. No thank you so much for this. <laughs> of course. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. You have just tuned into episode number 291 of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success, featuring my brother, Erwin B. Valencia. Make sure that you check him out in the show notes of this episode. You'll always find the incredible guests that we have, where you can find them, their socials, their websites, their programs, their books, everything in between. 
Check them out in the show notes of this episode, in this case, Irwin. And when you connect with him, let him know that you heard him here on Decoding Success. I'm sure he would absolutely love to know that. Furthermore, earlier, before this episode even kicked off, you were prompted with a call to action. That call to action is to take action. You showed up here for a reason, to soak in this knowledge, the wisdom, the experiences, the banter, the back and forth, the conversation. Now that you've done that, the next part of taking action is making sure that you are sharing this with the people in your life, with the people that you love, to also make an impact in their life the way that these words have moved you. Maybe they haven't moved you just yet, but I guarantee you at some point there is a reason that you heard what you heard today. And you might see that in three days, three weeks, three months, three years. But furthermore, part of being here is to make sure that you're also making an impact and spreading that good word. So whether you click the three little dots or the share button or screenshot this and throw it on social media. Sharing this is the next part of that action. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.